Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Thanks, Sam, for reading our passage for us. Um, I want to start this morning by thanking Jeff uh, for the thoughtfulness and courage with which he has stepped into his role here at EBF. Uh, It's certainly been a bizarre onboarding season for him with lots of unexpected things happening at our church, Uh, but he has done an excellent job leading us faithfully week after week. Um, And I know we mentioned this yesterday at the members meeting, but I want to say it again here. And to Eileen, who just got here this week, welcome to the family. We're glad that you're here along with Conley and Jameson and Liam. So welcome, Jeff and Eileen. Let's pray to begin this morning. Father, we are thankful um, for the gifts, small and large, that you give to us. And we're thankful for the Estes family. We pray that you would protect them as they transition to life here at EBF. Pray that you would help us uh, welcome them well as they make their home here, as they begin to sense your presence here. So we commit them to you, their lives and their ministry. Keep them uh, in your grace, Father. And Father, we're thankful for this morning, uh, which has your new mercies already in it, and we're thankful for the chance to gather here as your church to sing to you and pray to you and hear from you. And so we ask now that you would speak to us clearly through your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Send your spirit, Father, to help us walk in a more joyful obedience. Teach us to hope in Christ, please, Father. We ask for your help in this. Be glorified in it and use it for our good. And we trust you for this. In Christ's name, amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is the first line of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's 24 chapters, each four or five pages long, written prayerfully and read worshipfully. And it's been a gift to many Christians in the 50 years since it's been written, and this is the first line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I'm sure that many of you have heard this line before. You may have read the book or you've heard it quoted in a sermon. That line has probably been quoted in a sermon here at EBF before. So why am I starting with it again this morning? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm starting with this line again this morning because I'm not sure if we believe it. I don't know if I believe it. I mean, that's really an astonishing claim, that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do we believe that? Should we believe that? What would our lives look like if we believed that? Today, we're starting a new sermon series for the summer here at EBF, and it's a series on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. And there are seven of these statements scattered throughout John's gospel as Jesus identifies himself over and over and over again. And each time he reveals more of himself, each time he shines more light on who he is, Jesus wants us to know him as he truly is. Jesus wants us 
to know him. One strange thing about living in a world with social media is that you can learn a lot about a person before you've ever really met them. I mean, you can really find out a disturbing amount about somebody online. And I don't know if you ever had this experience, but it's a bizarre one, and I'm talking about when you finally meet someone in person, when you already know some things about them from online or or otherwise. So you're meeting them, and you're like, oh, hi, yeah, it's good to meet you. And in the back of your head, you're like, I know that this person is from California, they like Reese's Puffs, and two weeks ago, they went out for boba tea with one of my other friends. But in the meantime, you're like, oh, hi, yeah, good to meet you. I don't know anything about you, but it's there. It's really a weird experience when you meet somebody that you already know a lot about. I don't really know how to navigate it. But the real danger is when your knowledge about someone forms your expectations of what they'll be like. Oh, he's from California. He must be like this. Oh, she's a seven on the Enneagram. She must be like that. And you begin to have expectations before you've ever met them. What do we know about Jesus Christ? What do we expect of him? Because we will meet him one day. And then we will know him truly, seeing him face to face. But now, right now, what do we know about Jesus? What do we expect of him? Do we really know Christ? That's what this series is about. Because Christ wants us to know him. And so my prayer for this summer, my hope for our church in this season, is that we would know Christ truly as he is. That the Lord in his grace would help us know him more. Lord, soften our hearts and by your spirit help us know you. So today is an introduction to this series on the I Am statements in John. It's about knowing Christ. And our passage this morning will teach us that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's a matter of life and death. So let's turn to John 8. It was already read for us, so most of you are probably already there. If you're using one of the Bibles from the lobby, it's on page 582, or if you want, the text is also in the YouVersion app. John 8, and we'll be looking at verses 48 to 59. John 8, 48 to 59. But first, here's what's going on in John 8 as we get to our text. Jesus is teaching the people how he's the light of the world, how the truth will set them free. But he's also teaching how some of them are not really sons of Abraham, but rather children of the devil. They do not believe in truth. They are liars. So things are going back and forth between the people and Jesus, and the conversation is escalating. People have things they thought they knew. People have false expectations. But Jesus is letting them know who he really is. One commentator writes about this chapter. John 8 passes from lightning flash to lightning flash of astonishment. Jesus makes claim after claim, each one more astonishing than the one which went before. And we'll sense that sort of momentum in our passage as things continue to escalate more and more until the end. 
So that's the setting of our passage. Let's look at the first verse, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Wow. Okay, well, the Jews are coming out swinging, it seems. They call Jesus a Samaritan. For all intents and purposes, this is a racial slur. They're calling him a half-breed. We don't know who your father is, Jesus. You must be other, not from us, not a Jew, but a Samaritan. And not only this, but they think he must have a demon. He's crazy, demon-possessed. And at first, we're stunned. Like, how could you get Jesus so terribly wrong? I mean, demonic. What went wrong here? But really, we should not only be stunned, we should mourn. This verse should make us mourn. And it should make us mourn because people get Jesus so wrong, even his own people. I mean, imagine the Apostle John, a Jew, writing this story. A story about Jesus, a Jew, being totally misunderstood by his own people. And we mourn because we are his own people, and we misunderstand him sometimes. There are so many false images of Jesus out there. The Jesus who wants to make you rich. The Jesus who doesn't care about your body because he's only interested in spiritual things. The Jesus who cares more about America than other nations. The Jesus who wasn't really raised from the dead. That's just a metaphor. There are legion of false images of Christ out there. And there's plenty in here, too. I don't know the specific ways that you misunderstand Jesus. Here's my way. I think Jesus needs me to clean myself up before I can be with him. And I've dealt with this one my whole life. And it has real costs to it. And that's not the Jesus of Scripture. This isn't the real Christ. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And yet, I have this false image of Jesus, a Jesus that only wants me when I'm clean. And that image needs to die. I don't know what your false image is. All I'm saying is that there are a lot of false images of Christ that need to be crucified and not brought back to life. Lord, take away our false images of you. And this can happen on larger scales, too. I mean, there are entire centuries of church history when it seems like there was a pretty dominant misunderstanding of Jesus. The Jesus who wants an empire, or the Jesus who's okay with slavery, or the Jesus who's just like all the other religious leaders. And it's hard to pinpoint what our present cultural misunderstanding of Jesus is. But this passage, this verse, should give us pause. So we're shocked, and we mourn, and we pause. Because before we can get into this series about who Jesus is, we have to admit that we have false images of him 
that we need to confess and ask for him to take them away. I believe that Jesus wants us to know him truly. I believe that scripture's revelation is clear enough that we can have assurance that we do, in fact, know him. But I'm also aware that our hearts are idol factories, as Calvin says. We have become pretty skilled at making God in our own image, it seems. And this passage, this series, challenges us in that way. It frees us in that way. When it comes to our image of Christ, what does form our imaginations? Where are we getting these images? Okay, let's see how Jesus responds in verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So Jesus responds calmly at first, in total self-awareness. I do not have a demon, he says. And he talks about his father, the judge, who seeks the glory of Jesus. All over this chapter in John 8, Jesus ties himself with his father. In verse 18, the father sent Jesus and bears witness about Jesus. In verse 19, if you know Jesus, you know the father. In verse 28, Jesus is speaking on the father's authority, and so on and so forth. Throughout this whole chapter, and really throughout the whole gospel of John, Jesus and the father are one. Jesus and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the last thing Jesus says here is astonishing, and this passage picks up more and more momentum. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews respond in the next verse and say, now we know that you have a demon. And I have to admit, I'm sympathetic with that response. I mean, what does he mean we will never see death? Their objection is the same as mine. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the right question to ask. What could Jesus really mean? We will never see death or we will never taste death. Forgive me for pointing out the obvious, but I see a lot of death. There's a lot of death out here and we can taste it at times. So what is Jesus saying here? The Jews are astonished. And so are we. Let's keep going in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So again, Jesus starts by clarifying the relationship he has to his father. And then towards the end of his answer, he makes another provocative and hard-to-understand claim. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a baffling claim. When did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Commentators have very little agreement on this point. They try to identify the particular moment in Abraham's life when this happened, but they can't agree. Some think it was when God made his covenant with Abraham. Others think it was when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac. Still others have different opinions. So really, there's little agreement. And really, it's not the point. Jesus is not checking to see if the Jews remember the specific point in history when Abraham saw his day. That's not really the claim here. He's saying something much more significant than that, and we'll see it in just a second. But first, I want to point out one small detail in this text that illustrates what's going on here. You'll see in the next verse that the Jews respond and say, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And it's true that Jesus was not yet 50 years old. But notice how the Jews flip what Jesus said, and they say, Have you seen Abraham? Now, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. And they ask, have you seen Abraham? And this is the second time in the passage that they have not exactly restated Jesus when they're saying back to him what they thought he said. Back in verse 51, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But when the Jews restate it back to him in verse 52, they say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He will never see death or he will never taste death. It's not, it, it's almost the same thing, but not quite. The Jews almost understand what Jesus is claiming, but not quite. It's an emotional conversation, a hostile one even. The Jews have expectations. They have things they think they know about Jesus, about the Messiah, And when Jesus comes and doesn't exactly line up with what they expect, they can't quite get him right. He's not fitting neatly into their expectations, so they don't know what he's saying. They don't get it. So in verse 58, at last, Jesus makes it undeniably clear for them. He leaves no more room for misunderstanding. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This statement is the thunderclap to the lightning flash after lightning flash of the conversation that has come before it. It rings loud and clear, and the Jews know exactly what he means. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This statement, this claim, before Abraham was, I am, makes the Jews want to kill him. They try to stone him, but Jesus hides himself and leaves because they did not want him as he really is. And even today, he will hide himself and leave from those who do not want to know him 
as he really is. So what does this statement mean? Before Abraham was, I am. Why does it ring so clear to the Jews that they want to kill him? Well, for that answer, we need to go back to Exodus 3. So turn with me there, actually, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Again, if you're using a Bible from the lobby, it's on page 30. And this text should also be in the YouVersion app. In Exodus 3, the Lord is calling Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He's calling Moses to go and lead the people of Israel in their exodus from Egypt. And you remember that Moses is pretty hesitant about this call at first. And in verse 13, he asks, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He's saying, Okay, fine, God. I'll go to Israel and tell them that their God has sent me to you. But, God, it's been 400 years that we've been in Egypt. So they'll probably ask, which God is that again? What's his name? In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Total transcendence. Pure being. God beyond words. God who can't be named. I am who I am. God isn't answering their question. Which God is that again? What's his name? He is not one God among others. He is beyond naming. He is who he is, a constant fire burning in all power and freedom, burning and not consuming. He cannot be named. And in John, Jesus is identifying as the self-same God. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was. I am. You know, it's kind of an awkward sentence, grammatically at least. You would expect it to say, before Abraham was, I was. But no, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So grammatically, it's a little difficult. But theologically, it's perfectly clear. I am that same God, Jesus says. I am transcendent, beyond naming, eternal. So here's a good word for us as we start this series on the I am statements in the Gospel of John. We will not exhaust all there is to know about Jesus by August. We could never exhaust all there is to know about him. In fact, he gives us seven I am statements. In Scripture, from the seven days of creation to the seven trumpets of revelation, seven represents totality, completion, perfection. And in John, we get seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven statements so that we would know Christ. But then there's also today's passage in John 8. An eighth I am. And that passage brings us back to Exodus 3 and reminds us that God is beyond naming. I am who I am. But we can't forget verse 15, still in Exodus 3. Look back at Exodus 3. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The God who is beyond naming ties himself to the names of his people. I don't know if y'all heard me, so I'll say that again. The God who is beyond naming ties himself to the names of his people. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of Norm, the God of Ashley, and the God of Teddy. He has tied himself to the names of his people, and now our names are his name. And thus shall he be remembered from generation to generation. The God who is beyond naming has tied himself to our names. I am who I am. Total transcendence. Utterly other. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Intimate imminence. Here in it with us. Transcendence and imminence. And in Exodus, we have these two things right here together in two verses. And in John, we have these two things right here together in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, together. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In fact, I said it was a matter of life and death. And I said that our passage teaches us this, but I haven't yet made that clear. So let's go back to John as we wrap up this morning. In verse 51, Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. And I don't know about you, but for me that raises a lot of questions. After all, I see a lot of death. There's death in this room. People here and our families and our loved ones. There's a lot of death in Chicagoland. There's a lot of death in the world. And I mean like Christians keeping God's word who die because they're Christians in Sri Lanka or Iraq or Nigeria. Death. I look there and I see death. So what is Jesus saying? You will never see death. Jesus makes other claims in John about life and death. 
In John 5.21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In John 11, at the death of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet shall he live. He goes on to say that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And in that confession, she has life everlasting. She will never die. Because... For those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, there is no death left. Not one second of death remains for us. Jesus paid it all, we sing. All of our death, every second of it, paid for, gone and buried. And at the end of John's Gospel, he tells us why he wrote the book. He says, But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. Indeed, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Martha is not dead. She believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, she has life in his name, eternal life, eternal life that cannot be interrupted even by a second of death. My grandfather, who loved the Lord, is not dead. Those Christians in Sri Lanka who were murdered on Easter morning are not dead. Though he die, yet he shall live. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Whether or not we realize it, many of us live in constant fear of death. This is harder for myself as a 20-something to grasp, but some of you know this better than me. We are slaves to that fear. And it expresses itself in different ways, but that fear haunts us. And when Jesus says in our passage today, before Abraham was, I am, he's teaching us that he is the God who delivered Israel from slavery to the Egyptians, and that he is the God who delivers all his people from slavery to the fear of death. So this series on the I am statements in the Gospel of John is about knowing Christ. 
And I expect the Lord to use even these sermons this summer to take away our false images of him, our false expectations of him, and to help us know him truly. And that truth will set us free, free from slavery to the fear of death. Because Christ wants us to know him. And by his spirit, he will help us learn that he was not these things, not that he will be these things, but that he is who he says he is. A good shepherd, light and truth and life. I am who I am. And these things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making yourself known to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we confess that we understand him poorly and wrongly at times. And we ask, Father, that you would take those false images away. Replace them with ones that are true and honest and in accordance with your word. We're thankful for Scripture. We're thankful for the Gospel of John and the way that it calls us back to understand Christ for who he is. Father, we do confess our fear of death. So I pray for our church that we would be a people who feel delivered from that because we know Christ who put all death to death, raised again victorious, and has grafted us into that. Father, bring assurance to our hearts. Send your spirit, even over this summer, to form the way we think about you, that it would be true, that we would find freedom in it, that we would have life everlasting in your name. And so we trust you for that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.